from New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and you know, last time I did all Steely Dan, well, this time we're going back to the show tunes, <laughs> sorry, some of you, but I want to celebrate an experience that I just had, and I want to bring it on with, I've been to a marvelous party, this is Patricia Routledge singing in a review called Cowardy Custard back in the 70s. This is one of my favorite songs ever. We'll just do a bit of it. I went to a marvelous party with Nuno and Nada and Nell. It was in the fresh air and we went as we were and we stayed as we were, which was hell. Paul Grace started dancing at midnight and didn't stop singing till four. We knew the excitement was bound to begin. When Laura got blind on Dubonnet and Gin and scratched her veneer with a Cartier pin, I couldn't have liked it more. Oh, I've been to a marvelous party. I must say the fun was intense. We all had to do what the people we knew would be doing a hundred years hence. Dear Cecil arrived wearing armor. Some shells and a black feather bar. Poor Millicent wore a surrealist comb made of bits of mosaic from St. Peter's in Rome. But the weight was so great that she had to go home. I couldn't have liked it more. Anyway, I haven't been to any marvelous parties lately for the obvious reason, but I have been to a marvelous book. And that book is by Alan Mikhail, M-I-K-H-A-I-L, Alan Mikhail. It's the A-L-A-N kind of Alan. And the book is called God's Shadow, God's Shadow. And it's about the Ottoman Empire, specifically Sultan Selim. And it's really one of the best books I've ever read. And I'm not going to do an interview with Professor Mikhail for this episode because it's not a book about language. But boy, did it get me thinking about language as the linguist person that I am. Basically, God's Shadow is a book about a particular period in the history of the Ottoman Empire, and it opens your eyes to what the Ottoman Empire was and how central it was to quote-unquote the world at the time. We might think of it as, well, Ottoman Empire, well, it was Turkey, and we think, well, today Turkey is an influential nation, but hardly one that we think of as bestriding the world. And we know there was an Ottoman Empire, and we think of it as kind of a sideshow to maybe what many of us might excusably privately think of as the real thing, Europe, because that's where, quote unquote, it all starts. But actually, Mikhail's book shows that the Ottoman Empire, for a lot of its existence, and it starts in 1299, and it goes up into the early 20th century, long, long time. For a lot of its existence, the Ottoman Empire really was the empire. Europe was a bunch of instable, warring, semi-successful polities that were kind of straggling along. The Ottoman Empire was bigger. It was more stable. It was always expanding. By the early 1600s, the Ottoman Empire had 32 different provinces, and Sultan Selim had a lot to do with that. And there are all sorts of things that you don't think about. And so, for example, Christopher Columbus. And so he goes and explores, and he goes to America. Well, why did he really go? You're going to go across an ocean in these boats that are the size of school buses. What was he really doing? Well, what he was doing primary in his mind was he wanted to be able to retake Jerusalem 
from the Muslims. And the idea was that it would be easier to do it by going from the east instead of getting through the Ottomans by going the more obvious way. That was a lot of why he did this. Or you wonder, he is Italian. We think of it as Italian now. He's Genoese. Okay, but he's working through Spain. Why was that? You know, why is it that he has to go to Spain to get the funding and the wherewithal to make this trip? Because Spain was quite excited, unfortunately, about getting rid of its Muslims. And so it was part of the whole effort that he was going to be sent by Spain to go take Jerusalem from the Muslims from the other way. And, you know, Columbus gets over there. He he sees these people who he thinks of as, quote unquote, Indians. He thinks he's in India. He thinks he's in what we would now think of as Asia. And he can't help but see many parallels between them and Muslims. That's what he's all about. So the world was all about Islam. And Europe was fighting this. And Europe, for a very long time, was losing. And so you end up seeing world history from a completely different perspective. But Professor Mikhail does a splendid job in the book. I couldn't put it down. It was like Pringles potato chips. But the thing is, it's not a book about language. And so he only discusses that so much. And I found myself thinking, here's this empire bestriding, quote unquote, the world and the Ottoman Empire subsumes all of these different peoples and nations and polities. And I was thinking, how does language go in this world? where you've got Turkey and regions eastward and then down into Saudi Arabia and Egypt and then all the way over to spots around the Mediterranean and there are many Muslims in Spain. What's the language? What is the language of the Ottoman Empire? How did they handle that? And it just gets you thinking about all sorts of things, including ones that many of you have written me that you would like me to talk about, so I get to bring them in. So, language in the Ottoman Empire. How would it have gone? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You can imagine where we might start with Turkish. And it's funny how Turkish is only one of many facets that one might hit. And that's because if you had an empire back then, partly because there was no such thing as broadcasting, but partly because of different philosophies, empires that subsumed lots of different people speaking lots of different languages generally did not have an idea that everybody was supposed to speak the language of the conquerors. The idea was that the conquered people might assign a few people to be able to communicate with those who were sent from on high, but for the most part, other languages were thought of as just part of the deal. So, by no means was Turkish spoken throughout the Ottoman Empire, but nevertheless, the rulers did speak it. And you know, I've never really done Turkish on this show because I didn't happen to ever have a Turkish girl. I, I never had occasion to study Turkish, but it's a very interesting language. And really, if you think about Turkey, if you think about that interesting kind of 
bread loaf shaped piece of land. Turkish wasn't always spoken there in that piece of land, Anatolia. First, there were Indo-European languages spoken that are now gone. One of them is Hittite and it was discovered on tablets. Then there are other ones like Luvian that we hear even less about. Then after that, the Greeks, of course, had quite an influence over much of the quote unquote world for a while. And so a lot of Greek was spoken in Turkey. And even today, there are mixed varieties of Greek and Turkish together as the heritage of that. Then in the 1000s, the Seljuks come in and they are people who speak Turkish or Turkic. I'll get to that in a second. But that is how Turkey becomes a place where Turkish is spoken. It took a while. In any case, Turkish, Turkic, where do you draw the line. The truth is that Turkish is one language. Then there are a bunch of others in that region. And so, for example, Uzbek or Uyghur, Kazakh, Kyrgyz, Azerbaijani, what's another one of them? Tatar. All of those languages in my mind are kind of a big, beautiful smudge. Like I, as somebody who you know knows about them from a distance, I can barely tell them apart on the page. All of those are referred to as Turkic. It's the Turkic language family. And they do tend to run one into the other one, village by village by village. There's some breaks along the way. But what they are is the heritage of what would have started out as an original Turkic language. And as far as people know, that would have started somewhere in Mongolia, not in Anatolia, not where Turkish is spoken today. And the people who spoke this language acquired power. And as people often did after a certain point, they acquired power and they started moving along and taking over other regions. And so Attila, the Hun, until the Hun would have spoken a Turkic variety. The Khans, as in Genghis Khan, they would have spoken a Turkish variety. And next thing you know, you have this language that would have started out as something very obscure in Mongolia, you know, sand and stuff. Now it is spread all over a particular area of what we now think of as Asia. And if you ask me, and nobody did except some of you occasionally when you write me, if you ask me Turkic and then also Mongolic, and Mongolic includes Mongolian and then some other languages less heard of, then a group called Tungasic that none of us have any reason to know anything about, but there is a language called Manchu, you know, Fu Manchu, Manchu. Manchu was one of some Tungasic languages, and then maybe even Japanese and Korean, although that's a stretch. All of those languages are built in kind of the same way. There are, you know, guinea pigs and, and squirrels, and then Japanese and Korean are kind of like rabbits. Rabbits are not technically rodents, but, you know, they might as well be, and, you know, on some level, they are. There is a theory that Turkic, Mongolic, Tungusic, and possibly Japonic and Korean, that all of them constitute one family. And especially Turkic, Mongolic, and Tungusic are thought of as the Altaic family. Now, some people say that the reason that they're all kind of alike is just because they've all been spoken near each other. Some people say there must have been some original Altaic language. But all of them are ones where the verb comes at the end instead of in the middle. And all of them are ones where they have tidy endings that don't smudge together. And so you don't have the scrambled eggs mixing up with the french fries. They're just staying separate. So the endings are nice and tidy, as opposed to, say, English, where you have something like he walks and the tss 
is both present tense and third person singular. In many languages, you'd have something to indicate that it's present and then something to indicate that it's third person. You wouldn't have the two of them together. Somebody wrote me last week and said I should use more technical terms. Well, I don't know about that, but for those of you who care about this sort of thing, I'm talking about the difference between agglutinative languages, that's the tidy ones, and then the fusional languages, which are the ones where you mix up the French fries and the scrambled eggs into something disgusting. English is a fusional language, but all of these Altaic varieties are agglutinative. So maybe all of these are a family. If you ask me, they are, but it's not sure. Let's have another musical cue, because I'm really thinking of this. I am metaphorically pushing the buttons. One place that the Ottomans got to was Mesopotamia. And you know, there's a musical that takes place in Mesopotamia, and it's Kismet, which is one of my very favorites. And Kismet is not just somebody who sits down smoking a cigarette in 1925 and writes some shit. That is not Kismet. Kismet is the music of Alexander Borodin with words put to it by a couple of very artful guys, and the music very artfully adapted to tell a story. Kismet is essentially classical music, maybe light classical music. It's one of the most beautiful, dramatic scores I know of, of any kind, of any nation, anywhere. It's worth a listen. In any case, this is not since Nineveh, which is actually one of the more Broadway-ish cuts, but this is based on a Borodin melody. This is Joan Diener singing. This is the original Kismet cast album, 1953. It's in monophonic sound, and yet it still sounds like God. <laughs> or Allah for today. So she is singing about Baghdad, and here we are, not since Nineveh. about Turkish is the way it actually was at the time. And so, for example, Sultan Selim, he spoke Turkish, okay, but the Turkish that he would have known and dwelled in was something very different from the Turkish that's spoken today. And the reason for that is that Turkish, as a cosmopolitan language that had really gotten around, had taken on among elite slash literate circles, so much Persian and also Arabic vocabulary that it had practically become, if you think of a language as being defined by where its words come from, it had become a different language. It had become something called Ottoman Turkish. And Ottoman Turkish doesn't just mean Turkish as it happened to be in terms of historical stages during the Ottoman Empire. It really was practically a different 
language. And what you learn from Ottoman Turkish is that we're told about English that it's so unique that we have all of these words from Norse and then from French and then from Latin that we're such a mixed language and it makes our language diverse and powerful. But actually, that's something that happens to lots of languages. And especially since about 10,000 years ago, after the Neolithic Revolution, when populations started mixing to a large extent, even before then, but especially after that, it's very common for especially languages of empire or the equivalent, to become highly layered in terms of their vocabulary. So there is Turkish Turkish, but the Turkish that a person spoke, if they were of any kind of influence in the Ottoman Empire, had 90% vocabulary that was Persian or Arabic. Most of the Arabic was through Persian. Persian, which is a whole other story, had taken on a lot of Arabic vocabulary. But that meant that only about one in 10 words in Ottoman Turkish were actually from the original language. It was very much like the actual contribution of English to the language that I'm speaking right now. And so what this meant was that you had this way of speaking Turkish that was practically a different language. And then there was Turkish Turkish, which one was what most people spoke. If you were an ordinary, uneducated person, you spoke Turkish Turkish. But if you spoke Ottoman Turkish too, then you could do a lot of switching. And so, for example, you would think of the Turkish Turkish word for honey as being bal. But then if you wrote honey down, or if you talked about honey in some sort of public way, you would call it asel, and that was from the Arabic word. Nobody would ever talk about asel while, you know, having your arm around somebody and putting honey on their, well, they not pancakes, but whatever they put honey on. But then on the other hand, you would never write down bal, because that's a vulgar word. So you had that kind of situation. It would be familiar to speakers of most Arabic varieties today. And the closest we can get to it in English is the difference between, for example, children and kids. You talk about your kids, you write about your children. Or you've got your bags, you're, you're not under your eyes, you're holding all these bags. Then you're in, if I may, a bathroom stall, and there's often that sign about place your parcels here. What the hell is a parcel? It's a bag. But if you think about it, they couldn't write bag, they have to put parcel. Well, that kind of thing is much more common in the way many languages are spoken. And Ottoman Turkish was really taking that to an extreme. And so Selim would have known this Turkish, which frankly, somebody from the street could not have understood because it was so full of all of these high words. Now, Kemal Ataturk, when he takes over Turkey in the 1920s, he undid this. He saw this as inauthentic. He wanted to have a Turkish that returned to its Turkish roots. And we hear most about this in him changing from the Arabic-derived alphabet to a Roman alphabet. But he also made an effort, which actually worked to a considerable extent, to purge Turkish of as many of these Persian and Arabic words as possible and to use real Turkish words. And so it's as if somebody took the English that I'm speaking right now and decided that instead of me saying conclusion, I should say end say in order to have a genuine word. Or instead of grammar, some foreign word, I say something like speech craft. But Ottoman Turkish was interesting. It was the analogy is rough, but it was as if there was English that I'm speaking now, and then you go out into the street and people are speaking old English. And so we have to kind of make our way to communicate because I've got all of these foreign words while they're speaking the real English. So one thing that would have been spoken in the Ottoman Empire is Turkish, but not the Turkish that we know today. There was often this Ottoman Turkish, which was a whole different language, where it was kind of like Turkish having undergone what English underwent and kept. So I'm now kind of speaking Ottoman 
English. That doesn't make any sense, but you know what I mean. In any case, um, we have to do a quick break here for, yeah, you, you know it's coming, but this is, this is important. It's Slate Plus. What's that? Well, Slate Plus is basically that you get a tag, like on an old sitcom. Slate Plus is that I do some extra little bit. Sometimes it's about the show. Sometimes it's about just something else that was on my mind. But you get another three, four, or five minutes for a nominal fee. And for that nominal fee, not only do you get extra material that you can't hear anywhere else, but you don't have to listen to any ads either. Now, the Slate Plus pitch is something that we Slate podcasters always do, but these days it's a little more urgent than it used to be because of, you know, I don't even need to mention it at this point, the media are pinched and there's no emergency, but frankly, you know, quite frankly, we could use a little bit of extra money. And I don't mean me, I mean Slate. And so that nominal fee would go to not only my show, but also to all of Slate's other wonderful podcasts. So what you do is you go to slate.com slash Lexicon Plus. So for example, this week, it's Popeye. It's old Popeye cartoons and something that they reveal about the way your great grandparents, if they were white and lived somewhere in the Northeast, probably in a city, spoke English. And it's also about F. Scott Fitzgerald. So if you want to know what the nexus is between F. Scott Fitzgerald, your great grandparents, and Popeye the Sailor, and Brutus, then you have to listen to Slate Plus. You'll be glad you did. What else would they have been speaking? Because really, the Ottoman Empire extended way beyond just Turkey. And so Turkish worked pretty much, you know, in Anatolia and places where Turks were. But many, many other people were involved. How did you get around? What did the other people speak? Well, one thing that would have been very prominent in the Ottoman Empire, which to us today is often just a footnote, unless we have a heritage in it, is something called Ladino. What's Ladino? So on this show, I have talked about one Jewish language a lot, and that is Yiddish. And often I hear from people, what about Ladino? Well, this about it. It was a language that was very prominent in the Ottoman Empire. And so God's Shadow by Alan Mikhail gives me an opportunity to touch on good old Ladino. Ladino is known by many names. Um, it can be called Judeo-Spanish. It can be called Judesmo. It can be called Spaniol. And there are people who don't like it when you call it just about anything. I'm going to use Ladino because it seems to be in 2020 the safest thing, and it's what I hear it most called. My apologies to anybody who feels left out by or slighted by my calling it that. Ladino is, and it's. I think it's fair to say that it's a language that's quite endangered today. It's a moribund language, very interesting language, but it's highly threatened. But Ladino was, it emerged as Spanish, as Jewish people spoke it in Spain. So Yiddish, as I covered once, is originally, it's German, it's German made into a different language by Jewish people speaking it and infusing it with especially words from other languages, particularly Hebrew and a little Aramaic, and then also in Yiddish's case, Slavic languages. It's a similar story with Spanish among Jews in Spain. Jewish people have created many, many languages of this kind. So if you are a persecuted minority, everybody is speaking more to one another than to other people in the area, then you're going to take on the dominant language, but you're going to make it your own. And so what happened with Ladino is what you can imagine. They're Hebrew words. And so chacham, like wisdom, that's the word for rabbi, and even some Hebrew endings. And so, for example, hermano is brother 
in Spanish. Now, you can say hermanos for the plural in Ladino, but you can also say hermanim, that im, that masculine plural suffix in Hebrew. You can do that in Ladino. There isn't as much Hebrew in Ladino as there is in Yiddish, but nevertheless, it's there. However, the Jewish people in Spain way, way, way back were actually much more tolerant of slash open to the Muslims who were in Spain than the Spaniards themselves. And so there's also a lot of Arabic in Ladino. So their word for Sunday is not domingo, but it's al-hat, which comes from one in Arabic. So you've got all this mixture to the point that Ladino can be seen as a kind of Spanish, but frankly, it really straddles the line. It, it really is a separate Romance language in terms of how we would think of it from the perspective of a bird who doesn't doesn't know anything about language and doesn't know anything about national boundaries and just is trying to figure out, well, this one is different. That one is French. This one is Italian. If they saw Spanish, they'd say, okay, Spanish. If they saw Ladino, they'd think, well, that's kind of like Spanish, but it's not, not really. For example, it is often an older version of Spanish than what we're familiar with. So, for example, the pronoun of respect, usted, that we're so familiar with. And so, yeah, from English, it seems so exotic. Tu, that's for children. Usted, that's for your teacher. That's not in Ladino because Ladino developed before usted developed in Spanish otherwise. And so it has tu, and then, for example, it has vos for being polite, but there's no usted. Or, for example, the word for son in Spanish. And here we have to deal with the difference between writing and reality. So in Spanish, the word for son is spelled H-I-J-O, but it's pronounced hijo. So imagine really just in English, E-E and then H-O-E, hijo. That is the word for son. In Ladino, the word for son, though, is fijo. Well, why is that? Well, for example, hijo is spelled H-I-J-O, and that's because of what the sound used to be. Well, in Ladino, je, you still have that same area. Or the f, so hijo, it's spelled with an H, which is no longer pronounced. Then the H was pronounced at a certain point. But why H, when if you think about it in French, the same word is fils, f, or in uh, Italian, it's filio, and so F. The original sound was F. F can weaken into a and then the h goes away. That's a common sound change. But that means that hijo would have once been something with an F, and in Ladino it still is. And so the word for hijo in Ladino is fijo. Or for example, I speak, you speak, he, she, it speaks. Hablo, hablas, habla. Well, it looks like hablo, hablas, habla on the page. Well, in Ladino, especially because you've got that weird shape shifting between B and V in Spanish varieties, hablo is favlo. And so it's favlo, favlas, favla. So is that Spanish or is that really something else? Really, it's a different Romance language. Now, why are we talking about it? Because first they were in Spain. Spain chases both Muslims and Jews out. Well, where did those Jewish people go? Well, all over the Mediterranean, because that's what was close. You know, they didn't go to Australia. It would be nearby regions. And the Ottomans were tolerant of them. And so next thing you know, you've got these Spanish-speaking Jewish people all over the Ottoman Empire creating new areas, new regions, new lives after a while for people 
born to subsequent generations of Latino speakers, the idea that they started in Spain became an abstraction and people lived whole lives, generations just passed, living in places speaking Ladino as the private language, and then other languages for languages of commerce. Or it wasn't always that Ladino was so private. And so, for example, you know, have you ever been to Salonika in Greece? Wonderful city. I haven't been there either, but I kind of wish I had based on reading Alan Mikhail's book. By the way, no, I don't know him. I just really <laughs> love the book. But these days it's called Thessalonica. In Greek, is it Thessaloniki or something like that. Anyway, in Salonika, Ladino was the language. There were so many Ladino speakers there. This was a language that was written. Bible in Ladino, plays in Ladino. This was a major language of the Mediterranean. It helped you to know some. These days, it's associated with Sephardic as opposed to Ashkenazi Jews. Sephardic, well, if you learn Israeli Hebrew, one of the weird things is that you're waiting for the word for Spain to be something like Spanit or something like that. But it's Svarad, Svarad, that weird. And I think those of you who speak Hebrew know on the show, I adore your language, but Svarad is an ugly word. And I've always kind of wondered, what, what is that? Well, think about Sephardic. Sephardic, Svarad. So Sephardic is the word for Spanish. And so that's why they're called that, because it all starts in Spain. And so this is this whole other language. And now I'm thinking about Spain, and then what's the music? And I'm thinking something flamenco, and then that's getting me thinking about Cuba because of something I heard recently for the first time in a while, which is George Gershwin's Cuban Overture. This is one of his lesser-known instrumental pieces. I'm not sure why. Rhapsody in Blue was good, but Cuban Overture, I remember I first heard it at Philadelphia's Academy of Music. My grandmother used to take me to hear music there. I remember sitting there loving watching the cellos doing their pizzicato. Boom, boom. Great piece. It only runs about 10 minutes. I'm going to give you like two seconds of it. But this is because we're talking about Ladino. Of course, we have to hear some of the Cuban Overture by George Gershwin. So what else? Ottoman Empire, what languages do you need to know to get around? Turkish is nice in some regions, but then you might want to know some Ladino, especially when you're over in the Western Mediterranean, but even in the Eastern Mediterranean. Ladino might be useful. It might be nice to know some Ottoman Turkish, but what else did you need to know to get around? What did people use who spoke very different languages but needed to get some trading and maybe a few other things done? Well, there was something called lingua franca. 
And lingua franca is usually encountered today as a generic term for some kind of speech variety that people use to bridge the gap between different native languages. But that word traces back to one speech variety that arose. And this is something that starts in the thousands and is actually still spoken as late as the 1800s, this lingua franca. And what this was, was basically Italian dumbed way, way, way down. We're talking about Italian as somebody who doesn't speak it might want it to be. All the hard stuff taken away. The verbs are always just in the infinitive. There's nothing complex going on. The idea is just to communicate. And lingua franca was based on Italian because at this time, there's no Italy, but Venice and Genoa are major polities, major trading centers, major powers. And of course, Venetian and Genoese are very similar varieties of something that we now call Italian. So it's basically broken down Italian. You get some Spanish in there because, you know, Spanish and Italian are similar and the countries are close by. For the same reason, you get a bit of Portuguese in there, but it's mostly Italian. There was even some Provençal in there, the language of the troubadours. So these romance varieties, which if you were from somewhere else, you barely distinguish. They all seem like the same thing. There's some people who called it Christian languages. It's just this thing. And you break that all down so that you can communicate. And what you have is this thing called lingua franca. And it wasn't only used over in that Western European part. It was used in the Levant. It was used a lot in North Africa, where, of course, the native language of many people would have been, after a while, Arabic. Or you get over into the Western part of North Africa, where you're talking about Algeria and Morocco. There were Berber speakers. But how are you going to get trade done? Well, it was in this lingua franca as often as not. And it differed from place to place. If you go over to the east, it would have more Turkish or more Arabic in it. If you go over to the west, it was Frenchier near France, Italianier near Italy. But there were certain commonalities, and it was just something quite ordinary. You can find it cited, for example, in, of all places, a Moliere play. It's Le Bourgeois Gentilhomme. And at one point, this mufti comes in, and how is he going to communicate with these Romance language speakers? You know, this is France, and so how does he get his meaning across? And he does this little song, and I remember encountering this when I was in college, and I had this little tune in my head. I hate to admit that I still retain it. And so see if you can get what this means. If you know any Romance language, you can almost figure this out just from hearing it. And so he comes in, this tune is quite unimportant, but I have to come up with a voice for him. Is there something like, Say ti sabir, ti respondir, say non sabir, tazir, tazir. That was perfect lingua franca. So, say ti sabir. If you know, say ti sabir, ti respondir. Then you answer. <laughs> you answer. Say non sabir. If you don't know, then tazir, tazir, shut up, you shut up. I'm <laughs> sorry. So if you know, then you answer. If you don't know, then shut the your face. That is what the lingua franca was. And then it kept going. I remember I had this bridge tune to it. Me star mufti, ti qui star ti, non intendir, tazir, tazir. 
So that was the other part. So me star mufti. That's I am a mufti. T queen star T. So you, who are you? Non intendir. If you don't understand, Tazir, shut up. That's what lingua franca was. So you see, all infinitive. You don't have to know any of those damn conjugations. None of that. One pronoun form. Me star mufti. I am the mufti. Not io stare, io sto mufti. None of that. Me. It's always me. You don't have to know different forms of the pronouns. It's kind of how you wish a language would be. It's kind of like what Esperanto is like. In any case, what lingua franca is, for our more general purposes, it is a pigeon. Not as in but as in P-I-D-G-I-N. It's a pigeon. It's not a real language. It had maybe a few hundred words. It barely had anything we would call grammar, except certain ideas about what order you put the words in. This was not language. This was a tool. But there are times, and thankfully it's only happened so much, but there are times when people have to use a pigeon as their daily language and actually be people in it. And that is when you get a creole. Despite, as I hint on this show, often, that there are so many people who insist that all Creoles are is what happens when language is mixed together. No, that's that's not true. The reason that Creoles are the way they are is because they start with these languages that are tools that are made to be easy. But then, if you have to use the language for the rest of your life, then it gets hard again, like all languages. So imagine if this say Tisabir, imagine if there started to be ways of marking the past and the future and the hypothetical, etc., etc. Imagine if the pronouns started getting getting more complicated. You know, all of those things start happening. It's going to start developing words for things like the and uh that a language doesn't really need. Next thing you know, you have a creole instead of a pigeon. And in fact, if we leave the Ottoman region, one place they did not end up was Western Africa. The Portuguese were geographically positioned to do that. And so, you know, as small as Portugal is, it's interesting that Portugal was a dominant world power, including at this time. And they go down the west coast of Africa. It wasn't lingua franca they were using, but there was a Portuguese pigeon that emerged between Portuguese and Africans. And that Portuguese pigeon ended up being part of what slaves used in places like Cape Verde and islands that most of us don't know of today in the Gulf of Guinea. And so Portuguese pidgin was part of what ended up becoming real, complex languages like Cape Vergian Portuguese Creole and other ones. So it did happen with languages like Lingua Franca. But that just stayed where it was and the way it was. But one thing you could use in the Ottoman Empire, if you weren't using Turkish and you weren't up for Ladino, is you could use Lingua Franca. I am only going to discuss the other language that we might think about briefly, and we'll have occasion to come back to Persian. But over to the east, Sultan Selim was very interested in extending the influence of the Ottoman Empire into the area where the language spoken would have been Persian. And so somebody like Sultan Selim knew Persian. He could speak Persian the way at least a lot of us can speak French or Spanish. And so his Turkish was full of Persian. And then one might want to speak some Persian. He also would have spoken Arabic as a language of religion. The language situation in the Ottoman Empire was fascinating and cannot be done justice to in one episode of anything. But there was Persian. And Persian is an interesting language in that It's just like English. It starts as this bristlingly complicated in terms of endings and conjugations and declensions, 
language very much like an early Indo-European language, very much like Latin and Greek. Old English and Old Persian were of similar structure. Old Persian was quote-unquote worse in terms of how complicated it was. But then the Persian Empire took in a great many people from a great many places who would have learned Old Persian as adults and therefore would have broken it down the way we adults break down languages that we learn after the age of about 16. And so pretty quickly, Old Persian becomes a language that is actually as user-friendly as English. Modern Persian is a language that gives you very few headaches in terms of having to memorize long lists of conjugational patterns, etc. It's, it's as refreshing as a can of mango-flavored bubbly seltzer. It's absolutely marvelous. And also, it shows you how things wear down over the years. Words in Old Persian tend to be just longer than words in Modern Persian because of how these things go. So, for example, you can see Old Persian written in the town of Behistun, up on a rock-faced King Darius is writing about his exploits, and he describes himself as a shayafia, as a shayafia. That's that long word. You know what that is now? Shah. So, shayafia is now just Shah. That's what happens to words over time. In any case, Persian was another language of empire. You read about the Mughals who ruled India and similar regions for a long time. That's a whole other story. Persian was what they ruled in. Tajik and Dari, those are basically Persian. Those are varieties of Persian. It's a language with a great deal of influence and spread even today. And it's part of the Indo-Iranian subfamily of Indo-European. And so Persian has relatives. We've probably mostly only heard of Pashto these days because of various very unpleasant things that have been going on there that relate to the United States over the past 20 years. But Pashto is one of these Indo-Iranian languages. And if German and Icelandic are the way Germanic, quote-unquote, should be, and English and Swedish and Dutch are extremely streamlined, Persian is the English Pashto is their Icelandic. It's the closest to what old Persian used to be like. Then the Kurds, they speak Kurdish. That's another one of these languages. Then there's Baluchi, which I only mention because in the Baluchistan area, skeletons have been found of rhinoceros that were the size of buildings. It's absolutely fascinating. Paraceratherium. There's a whole book written about these things, but I always think of these big rhinoceroses. Anyway, that is the Persian story. And, you know, I know it's a little tacky, this sort of kitschy sense of, you know, what the Middle East used to be like, but one more piece of kismet. I'm sorry, because it really is musically a great piece of work. This is the overture to kismet, Inglorious Monophonic Sound. This is arranged by the incredible Hershey K. And just a little, this is how kismet starts. A lot of you will like this. This is the big hit Stranger in Paradise. This song is called Gesticulate. Thank you. 
This is Baubles, Bangles, and Beads. Okay, enough. I just love Kismet. And I hate to admit that reading Alan McKyle's God's Shadow, I was thinking of the Kismet music the whole time. In any case, you can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley. That's Alan Mikhail, God's shadow. And you know, you really should read it. We've all read enough books about Donald Trump and you know, pretty soon they're going to be about 700 books about COVID. Let's read something. Let's travel. Let's expand God's Shadow by Alan McKyle. No, I don't know him. I just thought it was a wonderful book and it got me thinking about doing an episode of this show stimulated by it. I think I just did that. In any case, Mike Volo is as always the editor and I am John McWhorter. <laughs>